0: Destruction of justice, if proven, would be impeachable. And you're going to go about to see if you can prove it?
1: Well, we're going to see where the facts lead us.
0: The fact of the matter is, I think that when you look at this report, you can see that there's enough information to move forward with impeachment on this president. Mueller is pretty express on this in his report. He says uh, that Trump can be indicted after he leaves office, and in the interim, there's a possibility of congressional impeachment for these acts.
1: Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Yasha Monk. I only made two predictions about the Mueller report. The first is that we basically already knew all there was to know about Donald Trump. We knew he probably wasn't a Russian agent and we also knew that he probably wasn't a decent guy. So the Mueller report has allowed us to see just how dysfunctional the Trump White House is, just how prone Donald Trump is to lying, and just how much this culture of dishonesty has spread throughout the White House. But none of that was much of a surprise. My second prediction was even simpler. It's that nobody was going to change their mind on the basis of the Mueller report. The people who see Trump for what he is see themselves confirmed. I'm one of them. The people who somehow manage to like Trump or to think he's an honorable man will find ways of explaining anything negative in the Miller report away. The political import of this is that we're still nowhere close to a majority for impeaching Donald Trump. We're nowhere close to Republicans chasing him out of office. If we want to ensure that Donald Trump doesn't remain our president for the next six years, it's a matter of beating him resoundingly at the polls. In twenty twenty. Today I have a great pleasure of having as my guest one of my idols from when I was fifteen year old and dorky chess player in Munich, Germany. It is Gary Kasparov, the most iconic chess player in the history of the sport, and more importantly, a very prescient voice who warned about the dangers of Vladimir Putin when a lot of us didn't want to listen and is now one of the most incitive analysts of a way in which Donald Trump is trying to undermine our democratic institutions. I'll be back in just a minute, but first, the tweets.
0: Only high crimes and misdemeanors can lead to impeachment. There were no crimes by me, no collusion, no obstruction, so you can't impeach. It was the Democrats that committed the crimes, not your Republican president, tables are finally turning on the witch hunt Saudi Arabia and others in OPEC will more than make up the oil flow difference in our now full sanctions on Iranian oil Iran is being given very bad advice by John Kerry and people who helped him lead the US into a very bad Iran nuclear deal big violation of the Logan Act? My friend, Herman Cain, a truly wonderful man, has asked me not to nominate him for a seat on the Federal Reserve Board. I will respect his wishes. Herman is a great American who truly loves our country. How do you impeach a Republican president for a crime that was committed by the Democrats? Make America great again.
1: Gary, welcome to Trumpcast. Thanks for inviting me. So, cable news and Twitter has talked about nothing other than the Mueller report for the last uh, two years. It's finally out. What are your broad takeaways from it? I can say that I was
2: surprised. It's exactly as I expected. I had no doubt the collusion was everywhere, but it was not clear to me whether you could prove criminal intent. So, whether Mueller failed to find it or... He didn't think that he had enough authority to push further. So, but again, it doesn't change, you know, the uh, sort of the uh, main conclusion, the outcome of the event. There was Russian interference all over the place and uh, Russians wanted Trump to be elected. And the Trump campaign communicated to them. Again, it's it lands a bit blurry, whether again, it was criminal, but again, there's no doubt that there was a communication and they were seeking some sort of help. I think, you know, there's actually more because definitely there was not a simple exchange of information, but uh, Russian uh, disinformation uh, uh, war was aimed at, at, at battleground states, and I think they needed data from T- Trump's campaign to understand where, the, where they could have the, the, the biggest effect of, of the fake news industry, so how to apply it. Um, uh, and as for obstruction of justice, I think the report is very clear, there was, there, there were, at least ten cases of a of justice, but Mueller followed the the lines of his investigation because he was appointed by by the um, Department of Justice, and uh, he had no authority to to, to charge Trump, especially at a time where a new DOJ uh, uh, made it very clear that the department didn't believe in 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 in, in uh, charging and indicting a sitting president. So. Um, it's it, it, the problem is
1: that this this the uh, the report is is now used for political spins. It's, it's it's politicized. Yeah, so that's the question that I have, which yeah. is it doesn't feel to me like this is going to change anybody's mind. I think most of us already knew that Trump wasn't exactly a great guy. It's not like anybody who still stands by Trump suddenly has decided that they oppose him. So what is the next step? I mean, do you think it's helpful for the Democrats in the next years? to keep the focus on collusion and so on? Or do you think they need to focus on 2020 in a different way?
2: It's quite funny that your question is also politicizing the issue. Because it's basically you're saying that, you know, there was a crime, most likely. But is it, you know, good politically to... Push, you know, this issue, which is, I believe, is is absolutely paramount of defending American democracy and American and institutions that help this democracy to survive for nearly two hundred fifty years. Or, you know, it could be more beneficial to slow down, so to go easy and just, you know, to attract more voters. I think that it's speaking about compromise on this issue would be wrong because Hmm. the Democrats should not probably so much, you know, just, you know, it's concentrate on Trump as a person, but it's about the crimes that have
1: been committed and and about the... So you picked out a tension that I feel all of the time on this issue at the moment, that on the one hand, what the special danger of Trump in my mind is, is his attacks on American institutions and the reasons why we should oppose him go well beyond partisan ideology. It goes beyond being on the left or right. It is about ensuring that our institutions aren't compromised, that people who disagree with each other deeply on political matters can be united in accepting the rules which judge that contest. Now, at the same time, I also think that the only way we can defend American democracy is to make sure that Donald Trump is not the president. So I can see how these two things can come apart. But the second consideration is also very important because if our cause of action leads to him being reelected, that's not a way of actually defending the institutions, is it? But I,
2: I couldn't agree more. But, you know, well, and it's the, and I think that, you know, reelecting Donald Trump, I mean, could be, could be uh, uh, a really bad sign uh, 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 of the future. Uh, if Trump's election was a warning, his re-election uh, could be exoneration of, of all he did to be elected and also uh, all, all the things he did as a president of the United States to um, uh, destroy the system of checks and balances, to attack uh, the very foundation of American democracy. But looking at the Democratic primaries, you don't hear very much about the vital necessity of winning. It's more about ideological debates. They are more concerned about fighting each other. And many of the issues that are being discussed on the left now, they are, I would say, totally counterproductive in in general elections. So the Democratic Party is yet to actually grasp its historical task to revive American democracy by defeating Donald Trump. And uh, again, I hope that, you know, Israel, the primary process, we'll see that the the idea of electability, you know, the, the motion of electability will prevail. But right now, again, we see so many issues that are being discussed that uh, could turn away many independent uh, voters, even moderate Democrats, but also... Again, the Democrats do not concentrate on the damage made by Trump to to the institutions. Again, mm-hmm. it's not about Trump, but it's about Trumpism, and it's and many of them, by the way, you know, they go after Trump, uh, but try to separate him, a bad bad guy Trump. But they are not so tough on the methods he has been using. So, what's the nature of Trumpism? What yeah, what do you the, think but, defines that? Oh, and what but, are these methods? but just even look at the look at the. I mean, first of all. It's the, the Trumpism, as, as with every would-be dictators, is constant work on sort of the downplaying uh, the importance of the institutions and mm-hmm. also sort of the turning abnormal things into normal. So it's this lowering the standards. Hmm. And it seems that, again, it's this many Democrats, they caught time and again by this trick. I mean, just look at, for instance, at Department of Justice. I understand why many people disapproved Sessions, but we have to give him credit for standing firm, he excused himself from the investigation because he had, though briefly, but still contacts with Russians. And it's very clear that he refused to follow Trump instructions to slow down or even to stop the investigation. And mm-hmm. he was fired. And now, now, what we see, instead of Sessions, who, again, many on the left could disagree, and again, some of the elements of his you know, policies and beliefs, you know, are not, I wouldn't favor them either. But now we have William Barr, so mm-hmm. he's not ideologically motivated as Sessions, but he's simply serving as Trump's lawyer, not as a top prosecutor in the country. That's, we could see that one of the top institutions of the country now is working for Trump, not for American people. And so that's what happened with many, 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 many of the, of, of, of the offices, the top offices where Trump, you know, kept pushing, you know, uh, people were loyal to him, but they were not ready to, to, to uh,
1: sort of to, to cross the sort of the, the red line and, and, and violate the law. So, if a democratic party wants to take these lessons on board, what does that mean concretely? You led an opposition movement to Vladimir Putin in Russia, which unfortunately didn't succeed because Putin is still the president of a country. What lessons do you take from that effort and ultimately its failure for what Democrats should do here? Look, but it's the what we faced
2: in in two thousand five, you know, and and onward when I joined the Russian opposition movement after quitting my, uh, my professional chess career, it was already uh, uh, an emerging dictatorship. Right. It was already a one-party dictatorship. We had virtually no access to, to mass media. I was not on Russian television. I mean, ever. You know, so that's my, we were cut from some main channels of, communi- uh, of communication. So that's why we had to rely on internet and some mass protests. And of course, you know, when, when the government thought that we went too far, so they, they used the most powerful argument, right? police. So uh, it's you look at you look at Russia today. Just it's it's a one man dictatorship that openly embraces fascist ideology. Here it's, 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 it's very different. The institutions are still working. We have many, you know, at uh, uh, many instances that Trump's policies have been uh, uh, um, reversed by American courts. The Democrats control uh, control the House. Uh, press is still, you know, very much open, so you can go around. I mean, we 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 here, we're sitting, we're talking about. Yeah, we're not afraid of a knock exa- on the door exactly, of the studio. That's exactly. ridiculous. So, yeah. No, but it's but it's but but we
1: should you know we should use this immense power very productively. I mean, one of the but, but, but I didn't mean to compare the two countries. And actually, I'll push you a little yeah. bit further on that uh, in a moment. But, but just in terms of, you know, how do you craft a strategy that can mobilize it's- people? Against, but again, uh, but again, but
2: it's. I understand that every you know political process, you know, it's about pushing your ideas, and I understand why many Democrats now are appealing to the sort of to 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 the far left in the party because again, it's as happened with Trump. So you want to appeal to the base, you want to win the primaries, and I understand that's 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 a policy that you know could bring you votes. Though they are, they're talking to a very small you know small number of voters that that could help you in the primaries, but it could be very it could be counterproductive in general elections. And I think it's now again, it's it's time to actually to understand that American democracy is at stake. This is not about now your policies. you know just we should not waste our time debating, you know the very fine points we move one degree, left, one degree, right. This is about preserving American institutions, at preserving the framework that could help us to revive the healthy debate, about very big issues. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't see the Democratic Party now is yet at a point where they recognize that winning elections, it's absolutely paramount. That's 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 what they have to do. And for
1: doing this, they cannot alienate many voters in the primary process. So what would that look like? I mean, if you were designing the election strategy of a Democratic Party, and I understand that that's not how you see yourself. But what do you think they should do if it is paramount to beat Trump? What is the best it's way to comment? It's
2: Donald again. That's, that's They have just to follow the lines that we have we have discussed here. Donald Trump is a threat to American democracy, and we are here. You know, we are this is the Democratic Party is is not to impose our, our our agenda. So on you, we believe. You know, we have better ideas for healthcare, for social security, and we. But it's, right now, it's very important that the healthy debate will be revived. That American people will be will be engaged in institutions. And by the way, it's very important. Important to look at the executive power now that has been allocated over decades, and to make sure that no president will be in the position to to endanger uh, the very core of American institution. It's about the, it, it, it's discussing, you know, basically American future and American role uh, 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 in in just in in this in global process because what we're seeing in America today polarization it's not just happening only in America it's hap- it's happening in the UK it's happening in France it's happening in Germany that's one of the fundamental problems and that's what makes Putin you know so happy because he could see that uh, the, the free world now is fighting against, yeah, fighting, it the fights within. And uh, more and more, you can see the alienation of people in the center and the fringes, the groups, you know, on the far right and far left, they are stealing the agenda and they are creating the situation where people will have to make a choice between, they have to go for lesser evil. Hmm. And I think
1: that's a losing proposition. So you pointed out rightly the huge difference between your situation in 2005 when you were leading the opposition movement in Russia and our situation here today. It's very different context. Um, um, but what's the implication of that? I mean, if we notice that despite our worries of Trump attacking democracy today, um, our institutions are holding up reasonably well. Um, Mueller did get to finish his report. There are independent courts that often rule against the administration. Um, Democrats do control the House of Congress. Is it because actually American institutions are much more sturdy than we thought and it's just silly to have these kinds of worries? Is it because Donald Trump is either less inimical to democracy or simply less competent than we thought? Is it because the opposition actually stood up to this moment and organized and defended these institutions? Is it because we're too early in this process and that the real danger comes later? How do we square those facts?
2: All of the above. Everything, so okay. Like, by the way, this is, it's, and we can go from point to point. Yes, American institutions are very strong. So it's more than 200 years. And we could see that throughout these 200 plus years, there were many moments where America had to actually to look critically at its own history and just to repel the scenes and to move forward by introducing new legislations. And just, it's a whole process, you know, it's recognizing that, you know, that they, they, they were scenes and the crimes of the past and how we should address them and how we can improve our system. It's, 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 it's a work in process. So, and that's why the institutions are so flexible because America could actually could could improve uh, and 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 make progress as a society without foreign intervention. It's probably the only country, maybe still UK, but uh, but in principle, so that's, that's the the country that was built on an idea and kept you know improving the uh, the uh, relations within the society. Uh, uh, you know, always finding the inner strengths. Now, but we reached a point where I think it's 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 uh, it's quite it it, it 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 could be a turning point. Because again, what Donald Trump has achieved already, I mean he, he succeeded in bringing these debates to a very low point. so mm. it's the and, and many things that he did, you know they, they have been criticized by the opposition, by the Democrats, you know uh, for merits, not actually for, um, for the tools Trump is using. So I think it's very important for Democrats to make it very clear that the president will not have power to declare emergency, even if the, it's, it's a good reason it's You know, because at one point you can have a Democrat, remember we talked about it, so saying, oh, there's some, you know, key issues, you know, where I could not pass legislation. Mm -hmm. Let's say, you know, gun control, important, climate change. And I I would like to use the power of presidency to push it through. So it's very important to to, uh, um, uh, uh, uh,
1: reject Trump's, not just Trump's policies, but Trump's, uh, uh, tools that so what would you say to people like that i suspect that a lot of people who are listening to this podcast might be tempted by that answer that they might say you know what climate change is such an existential threat that's it's the, so the important the moment, that's the, that we need to blow up i'm not here to debate
2: you know what's important or not you know there are institutions and it's if you try to push a, your agenda even if it's the best you know best agenda now and most vital by, by basically, you know, destroying the checks and balances by, by surpassing Congress, you know, you know, you, you, it's the open Pandora box. And, it's, and, and it's, I think as people talk about, you know, this this you know state interference and I hear, you know, the cursed word for me. Socialism here, not understanding the consequences. So this is, again, American system, you know, proved to be very resilient to, to attacks from both sides. But it's the first time where we could see that, you know, you have, you know, uh, very aggressive, you know, far right groups. And also, I believe equally aggressive, you know, groups on the far left that believe that they can push their agenda at any cost. It's very important that again the the, the middle ground uh, has, will be retaken, and and again there's there's so many ways of of defending your views. You you can go to press. You you have you can have podcasts. You have social media. Uh, you can you know uh, put all the pressure on your representatives uh, in in the uh, state legislation, in the federal legislation, in 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 on the hill. So, but it's just trying to find so the. Uh, um, uh, uh, <laughs> like a crooked ways of, of, of just going around the law and pushing something that you believe is so important, so vital, I think it's just, it's, it's, it's a recipe for disaster. And that's, you know, that's that's an essence of Trumpism. And that's what Trump wants, you know. He, he, one of the reasons why there's so many vacancies are, are, are not, you know, a field, mm-hmm. because, because Trump doesn't need it. Less officials are appointed by the administration, more power is
1: concentrated in the circle. So what do you think happens to Trumpism From here on out, let's assume for the moment, give ourselves a nice brief moment of respite and uh, picture the world in January 2021 and Donald Trump has just been defeated. Is that the end of Trumpism or what will happen to Trumpism if he's out of office? And what do we have to do to defend our institutions against Trumpism, not just in the next 18 months, but beyond that?
2: I said it from day one, Trump was elected, you know, it's Trump was a symptom. The fact is that Trump could be elected, told us volumes about American politics, because he could be elected only if Democrats would pick up, as they did, an electable candidate. Again, let's be honest, the Democratic Party for 16 years has been operating more or less as a political branch of Clinton Foundation, with one goal, to elect Hillary Clinton. She lost in 2008. And that's, that's, for me, that's, you know, that was a clear signal. She couldn't, you know, she couldn't be elected. So move on. And still 2016, they came up with the same candidate and Trump won. But now it says, i think—it's not about just Trump losing elections or being reelected. It's about the campaign. So it's very important that the Democrats could actually shift politics back to normal, to a normal, healthy debate, not to you know throwing mud at each other. Uh, because Trump is good at fragmentation. That's the way every would-be dictator, every authoritarian leader, operated. And Trump instinctively knows how to do that. Good news is Trump is not that smart. He's old. He's corrupt. So. Now, imagine if he's not all of that. So Mm. imagine, you know, you have somebody who's younger, who is savvy, who is a really good speaker, who has political agenda, clandestine agenda, but he knows how to handle it. So there's so many opportunities for this neo-Trump coming from either side of the political spectrum.
1: That's the thought that scares me most. I think there's a lot of people who look at the last two or three years and say, oh, you see all of these warnings about the stability of democracy were ridiculous and hysterical. Now, Donald Trump is brilliant at tactics. As every authoritarian leader. That's right, their exactly. good. He knows exactly what makes people angry right now and how he can stoke it. He's a very bad strategist. Exactly, he, he, as every authoritarian <laughs> leader. Because for
2: them, well, li- life doesn't exist after they lose. Uh, after they lose right, so they have to live off as
1: But don't you think that there is a distinction between somebody like Viktor Orbán in Hungary or even somebody like Recep Erdogan in Turkey and somebody like Donald Trump? Because they are able to build up a long-term narrative that their countries are under threat from the outside, that the only person who can defend them is them. They are able to go to the darkest, deepest instincts of some of their populations, but in a way that carries people. Whereas I think Donald Trump often just goes for his base and actually overshoots. There's certainly political gain to be had in American politics for racial incitement, but not in as naked a way as Donald Trump is doing it. There's a way of saying that the country is under attack, But Donald Trump always says that he is under attack and makes him about himself. There's ways that other authoritarian populists give big presents to people, make sure that their supporters actually get financial benefits. Trump hasn't really done that. So there would have been ways for Trump to expand his power much more subtly and while being much more popular, and that would have made him more dangerous. I don't think so. I think the the, the country is, is deeply divided, and I don't think there's
2: any chance for Trump to expand way beyond his base. And uh, he knows he doesn't need it. His re-election campaign will not be built on new ideas, but basically to throwing mud at any candidate. So that's why he's looking for new nicknames and also for, you know, for concepts that could scare off modern voters. And that's why the, the moment Democrats uh, uh, bring socialism to the agenda, I mean, they, 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 gi- they, they give Trump the best gift he can, he can imagine. Because he doesn't have to invent it, you know, if if so many Democrats now are willingly calling themselves democratic socialists. So and uh, it's it's this is his dream, you know, just to fight against something that could, you know, further divide America and and create create this this rift. And he will, you know, he will sell himself uh, not as the as the good guy, but as a lesser evil, because, you know, I'm here already four years. Look, that's the argument they will use. What's happened? No, nothing happened. So that says, you know, it's this it is yes, I fought, you know, this f- war with 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 uh, a special prosecutor. So, but at the end of the day, don't go, you know, this th- this direction because it could be really really bad. So that's a difference between him and, as I mentioned, Viktor Orbán and 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 Erdogan. Uh, hun- democracy in Hungary and Turkey is 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 not of the same strengths as in America. The institutions there were quite, you know. Uh, um... Uh, wouldn't call them primitive, but weak. And, and uh, both leaders, they found a way of, of, of just building their own narrative. You're correct. But in case of Erdogan, I think, you know, what's, what's also helped him to move forward, actually convinced him that he could do that, it's the success uh, of Vladimir Putin. Because hmm. it's what's happened in Russia that was a signal to many Leaders like Erdogan that were on the verge of deciding whether they go more authoritarian or they 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 they, they had to you know to play the same you know sort of the uh, middle game you right, know just right. uh, and he saw that you know Putin benefited from his brazen politics, he could attack democracies worldwide and,
1: and, and nobody could, really stood up to him in, and said one of
2: So I think mm. this the, the, the Obama's Obama's weakness in Syria, so Obama's decision not to punish Assad for using chemical weapons, that was a turning point, 2013 mm. for because everybody could see that you know Putin won the battle. Uh, and and for Erdogan that was also a signal. And also for many for many right wing groups in Europe. That was also a demonstration that Vladimir Putin could be a reliable ally. It's not surprising that since 2013, you have a steady growth of far-right uh, uh, um, groups influence in Europe across the continent. And, of course, the arrival of millions of Syrian refugees in Europe also helped them. It mm. boosted their, uh, uh, their image among the people because they were not just defending uh, um, uh, Their countries against the influx of refugees. You know, in theory, there was there was something, something real. So it's it's again it shows us that the world is 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 now it's it's all you know it's glo- it's globalization.
1: It's not only economic, mm. but it's also geopolitical. So let me go beyond the United States. If you think of Trumpism as not just an American phenomenon, but as a sort of subset of a broader rise of authoritarian populism, the last years have brought mixed news on that front. You've had In a country like France, populists failing to win. It seems to be that in many Western European countries, populists are now a normalized part of a political system, but not one that's capable of winning majorities in recent elections in Finland and Germany and so on. On the other hand, you also have their astounding victories in Brazil, in Italy, and you have a hardening of dictatorships built on a full-time populism in a lot of Central Europe and so on. Where do you think all of this washes out? What do you expect to happen to these regimes over the next 10 or 20 years?
2: But look, I'm not sure I can agree with your assessment that it's just, you know, it's a mixed result. Yes, in some countries, they failed to win majority. But if you look at the last five years, you know you could see them making steady gains everywhere. I mean, let's, yeah. let's talk about Brexit. No, I mean, Brexit, you know, Brexit was one of the results of this success of these policies. And, uh, and it's quite ironic that the images of the Syrian refugees have been used by Brexiteers to scare the population. They, would, they had nothing to do with Great Britain. So you mentioned Finland, but they doubled. The true Finns doubled their results from the previous elections. It's just the second largest party there, but they won. They're the biggest winners of the elections. Now, look at Germany. It's the first time. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that the neo-Nazi party gained prominence coming from nowhere to the third largest party, maybe now the second already, in Germany with no economic crisis. Mm-hmm. German economy is in very good shape. Never before fascists you know, could make such, such a big political gain without, without economic crisis. Because of the refugees and because of the steady and ongoing support from Putin and also uh, lack of political will of the mainstream parties to fight back. And we can go around, even in France. Yes, Macron won the elections, but in the first presidential ballot, uh, Marine Le Pen made 21%, and the far-left candidate, the communist, uh, Mélenchon, made 20%. So basically, 40-plus percent of French voters voted for non-democratic candidates. So that's, that's a trend. You mentioned, mm-hmm. of course, Brazil. So, and again, why Bolsonaro won? Because terrible, I mean, corruption was horrible. Yeah, so yeah. people get sick and tired. It's again, it's it's a reaction to to the problems
1: that have been ignored. That seems right. That a lot of the time, the reasons why people vote for these populists are real. They have actual things in their lives that they have good reason to be angry about. The problem is that the populists claim and pretend to find a solution that they actually often aggravate. When when I did a study of populists around the world, a database of populist governments since 1990, we saw that virtually all of them were elected by promising to root out corruption. And as a result of them being in office, their countries became more corrupt. Because it's inevitable. But the populists
2: are very good at addressing the issues. And especially if these issues is being ignored by the mainstream parties. Right, right. So they pretend that they are, you know, that, 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 that they are just the last defense for public against the corrupt establishment. Okay, drain the swamp. That's 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 a, a, a Trump's message. Mm-hmm. At, at the end of the day, there's more corruption. Because they 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 always you know uh, destroy the systems that that's the oversight systems uh, they it's a checks and balances but you know it's if nobody else is willing to address these issues if if governments is making you know uh, uh, policies that 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 are just you know are. Um, um, Contradicting public expectations, here you know where they benefit. Again, this, let's not forget it, the, the Jean Gillette, the, the Yellow West in France. You know, it's it's the, the whole movement was sparked by by the rise on fuel tax. So again, it's we understand the climate change is a serious issue, but if you push it with ignoring the voters, you give a chance. By the way, True Finns made a big big political gain because they said, why should we you know, follow this crazy Paris? our uh, 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 climate uh, uh, accord rules. You look at our country, it's a big country, so we can do it you know, without these stupid rules that put extra taxes on, on, on our citizens. So it's, it's about understanding that we cannot, going back to what you said about tactics and strategy, we cannot compete with populists in tactics. Hmm. But it's very important we lay down the strategy. So what is the strategy for America, for the free world?
1: So what's the answer to that? I mean, you're now heading up a new initiative called the Renewing Democracy Initiative. And I understand that the goal of it is in part to try and say, what are the actual roots of the rise of this populism and can we combat them in a more ongoing way? So what does it mean for us to renew our democracy in a way that'll make it more immune to those kinds of authoritarian appeals?
2: Yeah, it's this. This we formed this organization, the Renew Democracy Initiative (RDI),
1: uh, and our website is rdi.org. Rdi.org. Sorry, you have to sing it so people remember that You should come up with some kind of jingle. I would love to to have you, uh, you know, like a radio voice announcer singing. <laughs> RDI, Sorry. <but laughs>
2: yeah. Uh, and the again idea was to actually to to revive this political debate. You know, the RDI board. Includes uh, people from both sides, you know, just ranging from Brett Stevens and Dana White on the right and to Larry Tribe and uh, Heidi Heitkamp on other side. So it's a balanced group that, you know, has been you know brought together to find the right way to, to sort of rebuild this framework that allowed America to have this healthy debate and to always find a way of self-improvement. Uh, And also we recognize that, you know, unless the system of civic education is being built, so it's very difficult to address address the, the, the audience, whether it's, you know, young or old, because a lot of people, they are easy prey for fake news because they simply don't know, you know, just it's not just American past, but even even if you ask questions about about uh, the current political system, you will be amazed by the overall ignorance. You know, it's so. It's very important that you know we empower people, ordinary people, just yes, to have enough knowledge uh, to uh, be part of this debate. So it's not just to follow their leader. It's not just you know to be part of this of this uh, of the mob, you know, ideological mob. But actually to say, okay, on some issues I agree with with, uh, you know, with this candidate. On some, we shall agree with this candidate, but it's my vote, you know, I have to decide. So, and it's not, I'm not here, you know, just, you know, just to be, to be taken out. My vote is not for granted. So you have to fight for me. And, mm. and I'm, you know, I'm capable of making my choices. So it's, it's just to make the debate, you know, uh, not just, you know, overly politicized, but it's, it's more, you know, productive because there's so many things we should, we should discuss now that, go, that, that would bring us to the future. I mean, let, let's say 2019, it's it's a big year. I mean, two things happened in two, 50 years ago that, you know, that marked uh, marked um, uh, uh, 20th century, 21st century. One is, people remember, it's the moon landing. Hmm. Another one is very few people remember. It's the first signal sent on ARPANET
1: hmm. on
2: October 29, uh, 1969, from UCLA to Stanford. So Which it's the
1: predecessor the, of the internet it, and exactly, everything. Exactly, that's predecessor.
2: ARPANET, you know, was the, hmm. was the original version that was 20 years uh, later, you know, uh, uh, turned into a commercial entity by Verans Lee and uh, World Wide Web. So, but it's very important that, you know, we just, we could actually look back and understand how many great things have been done and how are we going to, you know, move into the future. So just, it's, it's I think it's one of the problems is that it's this, it's today, if any politician, you know, just repeats, you know, one of the most uh, famous phrases of, of American inaugurals uh, from JFK, so ask not what the country can do for you. I mean, that's the end of your political career. Because Mm -hmm. people exactly want to hear the opposite. So what what the country can do for me?
1: I I don't know that that's true. I actually think that there is a lot of appeal of that kind of civic rhetoric. It's just that very few politicians are actually using it. I mean, do you think that this is a problem of people having become more selfish and less public-minded and more tribal or do you think it's partially a problem that politicians aren't trying to appeal to the better angels of their nature and construct a common vision for what America can and should be? I mean, first of all, you know, just people—you know—that's they're now risk-averse compared to what was 50 years ago. Mm. So, they—they
2: uh, are not willing to take any risk. They're looking for benefits. It's the—and uh, again, it's—I uh, think it's important that that we can we can. Uh, rekindle the spirit, the spirit of exploration, of innovation. Uh, I, mean, I understand there's so many immediate problems that we should address. And it's the, uh, the disparity, you know, there's the growing gap between rich and poor. So, but I think partly it's because, you know, the country lost its way. I mean, it's, what is the future? So this is, it's again, the JFK spoke about the great future, moon landing, not just for moon landing, but to rallying the nation. So we're going to land the moon uh, and do other things in this decade, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Now, again, nobody wants to do things because it's hard. Hmm. So it's the, and I think we should, you know, by, by creating this new nationwide agreement about America's domestic issues and America's role worldwide, so we could create it's a new political reality where there will be no room for Donald Trump. Because again, as long as we lose our vision, as long as we are just, you know, we're bickering, that's an atmosphere where Trump thrives.
1: So what's your vision for the American future? And do you think we're likely to achieve it? Look, I think America has no other choice but to lead the free world.
2: It's not about you know, uh, um, it's just a American exceptionalism, but it's the fact is that is this 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 America today. It's still the most innovative power, and and it's it's and it still has institutions that are most flexible, and they could actually help to to just. To, to uh correct the course of this of this of this ship uh uh and and help the other countries to move in this direction but again it's very important to to have an agreement here about America's role in the world it's I mean for those who say yeah America you know just you know should, should you know uh uh should exercise only soft power and stay away you know and again it's it's not going to work because it's it's you don't do you know uh, anything you know in Middle East or in, in Latin America or in Asia you know it's you can no longer be protected by the oceans. So America has to look for allies. America has to create, you know, uh, more alliances and uh, sort of political affiliations to guarantee that the free world will be able to fight back. Because if you create vacuum, this vacuum is being filled by Putin, by Chinese, by Iranian mullahs, by all sorts of fax terrorists, and dictators. And eventually, this virus, you know, is, is, is poisoning your political system as well, as we could see here in America and in Europe.
1: Harry Kasparov, thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. That's our show for today. Tell us what you think. I'm at Yasha Munk, Y-A-S-C-H-A underscore M-O-U-N-K. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And before we go, I highly encourage you to sign up for Slate Plus. Today's the day. It's a mere $35 for the first year. That's highly competitive pricing for top quality content. Go to Slate.com slash TrumpCast Plus. That's Slate.com slash TrumpCast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan. John DiDomenico is our voice of Donald J. Trump. You can find him on Twitter at johnnyd23. I'm Yasha Munk. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.
0: The Mueller report has a line in it that says, people disobey me. Lies so untrue. Just ask Jeff Sessions. Who would ever read the Mueller report end-to-end? It's over 400 pages. Boring!